This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite you to be seated. Oh Lord, just as we heard earlier, would we experience that refreshment that you give where dry, thirsty land abounds in water? I'm sure some of our hearts are there this evening. Lord, would you show us how to live in true humility, true contrition, and in true love? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, back in the 16th century, so I think 1500s, there was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel was a Dominican friar that abused the church's teachings on confession, absolution, and forgiveness. In his day, there was a building project, a small building project that you might know. Um, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome had begun during his day, and this raised a question for the church. How are we going to pay for this thing? So in order to help pay for the project, one of the things that the church did was actually sadly extorted people. They, they called for something called a plenary or a full indulgence. And what is an indulgence, you might ask? It's a great question. An indulgence, uh, when people would go to a priest for confession, to confess their sins to God, in medieval Catholicism, the forgiveness of the guilt through the absolution that the priest would offer wasn't actually good enough. There was one more thing that people had to undergo, which was some level of penance. And I don't mean penance the way it used to be used in the church. It was this temporal um, punishment for the ways that somebody had offended God. Penance became a way to offset your time in purgatory, a place where you would be purged of sins after death. That idea of penance for time off of purgatory didn't actually arise until the late Middle Ages. It made the church the main dispenser of grace, and then it became a cause of abuse. So rather than doing normal acts of penance, which had been done in the past, what the Pope did during Tetzel's time was that he authorized a way to pay for the full or the partial cost of what your penance would have been, but to be able to pay that monetarily to the church. That's what an indulgence became. It was this fear-based, abusive system that started extorting the poor and the vulnerable, and it ultimately led to the reform that the church experienced. So Tetzel 
was a gifted salesman when it came to indulgences. You may have heard this little quip about Tetzel, but it's credited to him that he said, when a, coffer, when a penny in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So what was also an innovation in the time of Tetzel was not only that you could buy an indulgence for your sins, but the newer thing was you could actually buy an indulgence for the sins of other people. So imagine how appealing this becomes when you can think, if I pay enough money, I can take the sins away from my beloved relatives and friends to get time off of their purgatory sentence. So there's this amazing story about Tetzel, where after receiving a huge sum of money when he's in Leipzig, he goes to a nobleman to ask uh, for more, to sell indulgences. And the nobleman asks Tetzel, you know, is it okay if I purchase an indulgence for a future sin I have yet to commit? And, you know, this hadn't really been done before, but Tetzel says, yeah, let's do that. Um, Absolutely, you can do that. But you have to make sure that you pay the entire thing now. This isn't a partial thing. You've got to pay all of what the indulgence costs. So the nobleman does this. And then after Tetzel hands him the indulgence, you know, the little piece of paper that says your sin will be forgiven even though we don't know what that sin's going to be yet. Tetzel leaves Leipzig. And this man follows after, Tetzel doesn't know this, this man follows after Tetzel and then he attacks him and he takes all of Tetzel's money, everything that he had, and Tetzel leaves empty-handed. It's terrible. Or is it? So Tetzel, <laughs> so Tetzel then, uh, Tetzel tells the the, uh, the duke, that this happens. And the duke says, uh, well, first the duke is mad. But then, when the nobleman's called, the nobleman tells the duke all that had just happened. He tells him the story about how he paid for the indulgence of the future sin that he was about to commit. And then the duke says, well, I mean, that happened. And there's no recourse for this man whatsoever. So, I don't want to condone violence. Don't hear me say that. However, um, and I actually don't know what elements of this story were false. I can see Luther making up this story just to prove a point. But it does remind us that, you know, even in this life, we do see the proud scattered in the thoughts of their hearts. Ruin doesn't lag far behind the lives of the proud. Last week, if you were here with us, it was a larger, um, very full time together. Our bishop was here, um, and he preached a passage on the passage leading up to this one in our gospel reading. Mary had gone to the house of her relative. They're both with child now, and the child that's in Elizabeth's womb, Mary's relative, is John the Baptist. And when Mary comes, John leaps for joy. And Bishop John encouraged us to have the humility that's found in Elizabeth that takes joy in the work that God is doing in other people. Elizabeth ends that passage by proclaiming this sentence. She says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So what we read tonight in our gospel passage together is a very simple and a very beautiful hymn of faith that comes from the mouth of the Blessed Virgin Mary, where she praises God for who he is and what he does. And then this passage invites us into sharing in the same kind of faith that Mary has. 
It's a humble faith, one that takes God at his word. Her song reminds us that things can and will be set in order for those who are following after Christ, who are trusting in him. This Sunday, we lit the rose candle. This Gaudete Sunday, Sunday of rejoicing that reminds us that the darkness of Advent is almost over. It's almost done. We hope for that day when everything in heaven and on earth will ring with Jesus's majesty, not in part as it does right now, but in full. Just as a couple is preparing their house for their firstborn in the third trimester, not that I know what that's like, So this Sunday calls us to prepare our hearts for Christ, whose birth we're going to be celebrating together in a few weeks. The same Christ who will come again to judge and to renew heaven and earth in his second coming. Mary's humility is described in a small treatise on on the topic of humility. The, The treatise is written by this Persian bishop, a guy named Aferhat, if you're looking for baby names. Farhad or Afrahat. He's writing from the early 300s, and he's also known as the Persian sage. He recounts the words of Gabriel, the angel that had spoken to Mary, where he calls her the most blessed among women. And then Afrahat says this. He says, and Mary was sown with the seed of the beloved child, and she glorified and magnified the Lord who found his maidservant in her humility to be most favorable. And he took no favor with the lofty or the proud. The most high exalts the humble. So take note, my beloved, that peace runs after the humble. So when I think of Mary's faith, I want peace to chase me. I want to have a humble faith that trusts God for the things that he's said. I want to do the things that he's called me to do so that peace will chase me. I don't want to be among the proud, those that God scatters, that always have ruin nipping at the heels of where they're going, waiting for that moment when they're going to lose their balance so that it can overtake them. Mary sees her identity as God's servant, which I find, and maybe some of you find, that to be a very difficult posture to take because it goes against so much of the narrative of where we live. Because what that means is no matter what my income is or what my network is or my position is, I am first and foremost a servant of Christ. I'm a servant. But I want to know that I matter, right? I want to know that I'm important and that without me and the things that I can bring to a project or a team, things will not get done. I want to be important. So for some of us, there's this fear that if I'm not seen as important, then people won't find value in spending time with me. Some of us might just want to be taken seriously, and if we can't look large enough in front of other people, then we're afraid that we won't have a voice in a discussion. It's a hard appearance to keep up. And at its core, it makes me the servant of myself. It reminds me of this little line from the rule of St. Benedict where he says, do not wish to be called holy before you are so. It's true. But first, be holy so that you may be truly called so. To be counted among the humble that God finds pleasing, 
we start by just learning our master's commands and his promises so that we can do them. And then trusting him with the things that we don't yet understand or the things that we don't yet see. There's a simplicity in this humility. It's the kind of trust that characterizes the humility that we find in Mary. It's the kind of humility that peace pursues. Many of you know that I'm in this church planting residency, and one of our sessions we had, we did a Zoom call with a guy down in South Carolina. This guy has planted well over 10 churches. He's really doing amazing work. So young men are coming to him all the time asking him if they can be part of the team because they have a desire to plant a church. Uh, So we asked him, how do you discern if somebody should plant a church or not? It's a huge question. Takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of commitment. And his answer was really helpful. He said, well, first I have a meal with him and his wife. And then as we eat, I watch the ways that he interacts with other people, especially his spouse. And then I ask myself, would I want this person to be my pastor? In other words, is this somebody that he could emulate? Somebody that he could trust to shepherd him and guide him in becoming more like Jesus? And if the answer is no, then that person should definitely not start a church. So we need to start by examining our own integrity as followers and as servants of Christ. It's not how can I get my kids, how, how can I get my spouse, how can I get my roommate to obey Jesus better, as tempting as that thought might be. Or even worse, how can I look like I'm following Jesus more? I'm not sure if we'd admit that to ourselves, but we are preoccupied with the thought. Or at least I am. This is confession. But humility says, how can I grow in my understanding of who God is, how deeply he cares for me as his child, and what that means for how I go through this life in his service? The deeper we delve into that grace that's found in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the deeper we grow in humility. Advent is a helpful time. It's a time to tell God where we feel weak, where things feel dark, where we're waiting for hope. We recognize that things right now aren't as they should be, and each one of us tonight has one or more particular places that feel difficult, possibly even crushing. So what's that place for us this evening? How are we walking through it? We can walk through it with the recognition that we are God's servants, that we're servants of the Most High, Or we can walk through it, attempting to pull ourselves up in our own strength to rely on others to fix our problems. Instead of going to God first, our first impulse can often be who we can call to make it better. Who are we going to call to fix it? And I fall into this too. And it's good to get wise counsel, but if we were to make going to God our first impulse, then we would be more likely to recognize his handiwork when peace actually comes. To constantly turn to those who we know, rather than the God that we serve, fosters this habit of self-will and autonomy that starts to sow the seeds of pride that will grow later. So every struggle, every trial, be it some relationship, loss, sickness, or some other adversity, as the prayer says, Each one of those is an opportunity for humble dependence on our creator, the God that we serve. We can give those worries and cares to our Lord because the divine word, who in humility became flesh, 
is, as was preached two weeks ago, the Prince of Peace. By his cross, he defeated Satan and death and the wicked devices and desires of our own hearts, and he made them no longer our masters. Peace pursued humility himself, Christ, and the schemes of darkness were shattered. And so do we trust him with this simple and humble faith at his word? As we heard from the song earlier, God takes no desire in the proud, but instead they're pursued by ruin. When you look throughout the Old Testament, the idea of scattering is significant. In God's covenant that he made with Israel, if they persisted in disobedience, the thing that he promised to do was scatter them in exile so that he could bring them back in faithfulness. And that is ultimately what happened. They were scattered. The idea of scattering in the scriptures never is positive. So when we hear Mary's words, the words that she says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Some translations say, he's scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. We're hearing about those whose ears are no longer listening to God's voice. Their thoughts have gotten carried away, and they've started carting them off into trackless wastelands, where they were no, never find water. The scriptures in our daily experience are filled with examples of that kind of person, of the proud. And I'm sure that as you think about the proud, you probably already have somebody in mind. Don't say it. That's the person who might rewrite the Lord's prayer to say, not thy will, but my will be done. People generally don't want to put others in poverty or destroy foreign economic systems, pollute the earth or destroy lives, but it happens all the time. The proud long for autonomy, independence from the creator, from their God, in the pursuit of pleasure and wealth and power. And when these become the goals of life and not the means to serve the creator any longer, then ruin is not far behind them. So pride, pride takes God's good gifts and then it employs them in our own self-indulgence. It reminded me of this story I had read about a piece of artwork that Banksy painted a few years ago. He painted this picture of a girl holding a balloon. And someone at auction bought it for $1.4 million. And once they bought it, you hear this loud beeping noise, and the picture starts shredding through the frame. He had built this thing to be shredded the moment that it was sold. And so as everyone's looking on, they thought that the piece of artwork was ruined. And to them it was. But as one article points out, and I think this is helpful, they say the painting wasn't destroyed. Girl with Balloon's destruction, however, was a conceptual artist transforming his own piece of art. He did so as a premeditated response to the actions of an exploitative art market. That's art. <laughs> so while Banksy wanted art to exist for the public square, the wealthy, they see it as an opportunity and a commodity to be bought and sold in the marketplace. The way that the art market has taken beauty and turned it into a commodity in some ways reminds me of the ways that pride misunderstands the goodness of God's gifts and his creation. 
what Advent teaches in Jesus' second coming as we prepare all extortion and abuse and autonomy and every other form of pride will be scattered by the Prince of Peace. And so let's follow the example of the ever-blessed Virgin Mary, trusting God, trusting God humbly at his word, not manipulating, not trying to be cunning, just to trust that God will do what he says he'll do so that peace can chase after us. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we hold up all of our weakness to your strength, our failure to your faithfulness, our sinfulness to your perfection, our loneliness to your compassion, our little pains to your great agony on the cross. We pray that you will cleanse us, strengthen us, and guide us so that in all ways our lives may be lived as you would have them lived, without cowardice and for you alone. Show us how to live in true humility, true contrition, and true love. Amen.